Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, 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 very special mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, in a great surprise this Sunday, Dr. Anir Banmahati. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. There's no surprise here. It, it, it's definitely... Welcome. Uh, 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 welcome to our very regular Sunday mailbag edition. You forgot special. Uh, uh, okay. Very regular, special Sunday regular mailbag edition. <laughs> That'll do. Let's move on. First question from Hoppy. Hoppy says, Hey, Scott, thanks for answering a previous question in return for my five-star review. It seems that people are not giving the obligatory five-star review or praise in order for their questions to be asked. Now, Hoppy, I completely agree. Hoppy says, I thought I would write that ship and, <laughs> and snuck onto my girlfriend's phone and gave you a splendid review on her behalf. That's all right. I'll take that. Hopefully, that will get this question answered. Now, the backstory here, Doc, and I said on Friday, I had to apologize. I, I said to Hoppy after this message, yeah, yeah, we'll do, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. That was in September. And, <laughs> and Hoppy hit me up uh, only yesterday, I think. I said, hey, um, what about that on the list thing? Where's my question? I'll, t- I'll take back the praise. And I couldn't have that. So Hoppy's question gets answered. He says, um, uh, I gave you a spender review. Hopefully that will get this question answered. I'm interested to know what you and Doc each perceive, and I like this question, mate, as a strong balance sheet and cash flow statements. I know Doc likes to look at free cash flow, but is he looking at free cash flow in relation to another metric? Cheers, mate. As always, the podcast is excellent, and I look forward to them each week. Thank you, Hoppy. They're very kind, and here you go. That's my, my absolute apology, my mea culpa. For, uh, for not getting this done, uh, answered earlier. I don't know what happened to it. We actually get a lot of questions and I manually copy the screenshots on our Google Doc. So it's just my in- incompetence, frankly. Um, Doc is nodding for those who aren't, can't say that. So I'll, I feel suitably chastened well, by that. You could blame uh, Google Docs. I could, I could blame You don't have to blame your competencies. You could just blame <laughs> Google's competencies. Oh, it's easier. You? you know what I do? Hey, Instagram. So Instagram, I have, to, I have to open on my phone, screenshot it, then either open Google Docs and try and use my phone to put it in Google Docs or email it to myself. It's a pain in the neck. Anyway, I love Instagram. No, I love Instagram questions because they're fun. More to the point, Hoppy's got a question, mate. So I like this question because it's one thing to say strong balance sheet, another thing to say lots of free cash flow. But the right question Hoppy asks is relative to what? Because you know what is strong, what is weak, what is a lot, what is not enough? How much cash flow is, is enough? How much is too little? How much is too much? I'll ask you first because I like to ask you the hard questions and then I can steal your answers. Um, what is what is for you a strong balance sheet? Now, there's no, I, I know you well enough to know there's no absolute answer, no, no specific exact answers, but what's a strong balance sheet? What is what is you know strong enough or, or high enough free cash flow? How do, you, how do you think about those numbers? Yeah, this is an interesting one. It, it, relativity matters here, but actually on the balance sheet front, actually relativity matters to some extent less. So... Here's one way to think about it, right? So if you've got a small business with, with you know, which is generating a few million dollars in revenue, mm-hmm. its market cap is 20, 30 million, let's say 50 million, yeah, right. and it's got 5 million cash. Now, relative to market cap, it might appear that, oh, 5 million cash is a lot, yep. right? 10% yep. of market cap. Which is. Uh, and, you know, a couple <laughs> million dollars of revenue. But yes. here's the thing, right? If you're burning capital, which is what the free cash flow, so if, if at the yeah. end of the day, the amount of money coming in versus the amount of money going out, and that's high, mm-hmm. then... Five million may not last you long. <laughs> a strong balance sheet isn't so strong if you burn yeah, cash for long enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Burning cash for long. So, so relative to cash burn, you have to look at that. Is number one. Number th- so basically, if your cash burn is at a certain rate, mm. and you know five million, then it's not going to be. The other really mm. thing is that for any business of any magnitude, mm. a certain amount of cash. Like if you've got an ASX one hundred company that doesn't have say hundred million dollars of cash, it's just weak in my view. 
Right. Like it's just weak, plain weak. Because I mean, hundred million dollars of cash, a lot of small businesses that are not listed would have, right? right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's some absoluteness to it, some relativeness to it. Okay. Um, right. I mean, you could say that. Well, you know, I've got thirty million dollars of cash, and that's enough. Uh, yeah. But it's probably not enough because you know I've mentioned this. For example, like mm-hmm. you know, company gets a fine, right? Mm-hmm. You may have enough cash on the balance sheet but you don't have enough to pay the fine there's no rainy day cash yeah right so yeah. So it's that sort of thing so there's a okay. bit of relativity to it Relati- uh, yeah that's how I I, th- I think about the the balance sheet but yeah the, the, I think the number one is relative to how much cash you're burning um, mm-hmm. so a company that wasn't burning cash if it was let's say it's, let's say it's purely break even or make a little bit of money just to make it I know there's no absolute answer I'm not trying to pin you down or anything um, but just just to kind of just to help out for a sec if if it's not burning cash, how strong is a strong balance sheet, or, or what what you know put put strong balance sheet into some sort of context for us? You do like strong balance sheets. You said that before. Um, now an ASX one hundred company that's been you know, a Woolies or a CSL or a Cochlear, they're very different businesses, and, and and that your point would be if it's genuine blue chip, genuine quality, should have more cash. Most of the companies you invest in don't have that sort of Fort Knox balance sheet, or nor my mine for what it's worth. Um, so so what for your investments? When you say strong balance sheet, what are you looking for? Yeah, so like I'm looking for plenty of cash, you know, multiples of, uh, you know, multiple quarters, you know, you know, preferably at least, you know, two plus years uh, mm. to uh, to run the business. Right, so if okay. you know if you're burning some cash, you want to be at least have two plus years of cash. I, I in general, I I like to see some absolute amount of cash if I can, and and then the rest of it is really relative to how much the business is burning, generating, what its costs are to run its business, right? Uh, there are some obvious costs in any businesses, you know, sales and marketing, general administrative costs, you know, there's, you know, potential CapEx costs over time, you know, capital expenditures that you need to know. So you want to look at those costs and you want to have some multiple of that, you know, because revenue could, by definition, go to zero, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, like... Uh, for a really small company, say hundred million dollar company, I'd like to see at least ten million dollars of cash. That's like you know, my, like you know, I'd make an exception. There's an exception for every rule, but you know, ten, twenty millions of cash, twenty million dollars of cash is sort okay. of what I look for. So, so, so more, uh, more just a, a, an amount rather than a percentage, and just in a as, as a rainy day fund, or as a just yeah, in case as, as a base wrong? minimum. Like I mean, you right. know, I like to see that much, and then I want to see how much you're burning. How can you sustain, say, about eight quarters? Um, mm without oh, having okay, to raise right. capital nice. Nice. that's number two yep. number three is i would like to see what your you know sort of your business costs are hmm. so that's not really how much you're burning right that's basically you know what's your sales and marketing what's your uh r d and you I'm, i understand that as your revenue hmm. goes down you'll be able to cut many things but again if you cut some things so you cut r d now you basically you're losing people yeah. if you lose people you have to find those people back again right when you want to go back so there's that that element so yeah like combination of is things what I look for and you know, many of my companies that I look at wouldn't have super strong balance sheets by definition mm-hmm. because they are just smaller riskier yeah. companies yeah. again by definition earlier stage companies yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's it's you know like it's like investing in startups right if you're investing in startups by definition the balance sheet is not supposed to be <laughs> um, right. their balance sheet is not supposed to be like Apple's balance yeah, sheet yeah, right yeah. because you know yeah. they're startups right? it can't be almost by definition yeah it's by yeah. definition yeah. they can't so that's yeah, yeah but you want to have some assurance that they will be able to continue business as is and that they would have access mm. to capital markets or mm. debt, um, right? And I think what happens in markets, at least as my last point, is if you have a business where 
it is almost imminent that cash needs to be raised. Mm. The market has a tendency to mark that down, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? And you get into this vicious spiral where yeah. you know the stock price is down because you need to raise cash because you need to raise cash. <laughs> the stock price is down, and yeah, then you yeah, need yeah. to raise it at a further discount, which yeah. is really dilutive, right? So, so. so and that can really kill investment returns, like that really, really, really kill killing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like if you had to raise something at fifty percent less, then yeah. you, by definition, you're yeah. going to have significant dilution. Yeah. So, so I try to avoid getting into situations like that. Mm. Do I manage? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, again, that's part of the. You know, just you have to accept that that's part of what it is, which is yeah. why we say yeah. at least for for like extreme opportunities uh, service that you want to start each position small mm. you want to, so that you know if it, things go wrong then you don't feel the pain and that, that's I think the allocation issue comes into play I like that mate that's important when it comes to free cash flow do you have a you've talked a bit about different companies with, with high free cash flows before is it yeah. so you're, you're, you're a blue sky investor you're looking for big long term returns and, and companies doing great things in big TAM markets is there an amount of free cash flow you, you even care about or is it just literally that at least earning something to keep its lights on and doors open so in the early years, of course. Yeah, so this really depends on the company and B, what they're doing and mm. C, where they can get to, right? So yeah, I think right. the answer really varies from, if you're looking at the small end of the company, say that mm. the, you know, the, the, the extreme opportunities on the ASX, mm. then by definition, most of these don't have free cash flow. Yeah, They're in that stage where yeah. they don't have free cash flow and it'll take them some time to get to that free cash flow mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to think about where they're going to be. You're back in balance sheet territory, right? Of how much cash yeah. they got. Yeah, so you're actually balance sheet yeah. becomes yeah. a word, which is yeah. why we talk about balance sheet more than we talk about cash flow because yeah. we know they don't have it, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. So then you could have some models, right? You know, like mm-hmm. if you look at software businesses then you know that while at scale, the, mm-hmm. the thing with many businesses Many good businesses is basically the the game of scale, yeah, right? right? And at scale, you can have a rough idea. Like payments businesses mm-hmm. at scale mm-hmm. can be very profitable because yeah. you know uh, software businesses at scale can be very <laughs> profitable. But getting to scale is really hard, yeah. uh, and it takes time, right? So again, there's that aspect, right? And when I talk, I really talk about cash flows in the context of some of these, you know, US mm-hmm. businesses, which are when we're talking about those, even those that are high growth but they would be substantial. They would be larger than many of our large companies, right? So you know, I think talking about $10, $20 billion company, uh, US market cap company, it might not actually be making any money right now. It would be probably break even. Those, I think at scale, will be generating you know hundreds of millions of dollars of free cash flow, yeah. right? And then the other thing I look at free cash flow is like you know, well-established businesses, uh, things like Apple or mm-hmm. Google or Alphabet, uh, sorry, or Microsoft, right? Those, those are generating free cash flows in the order of, 50 to 100 billion dollars mm-hmm. right so the apple's free cash flow is like 80 billion so th- there's a there's there's a whole range and for each range of free cash flow mm. there is a potential future mm. right um you know the the pedestal at which the the 50 billion dollar companies free cash flow sit there is no you know not many companies are going to get there mm. and once you get there you're only going to fall out of your own miseries, not because somebody else is going to come and dis, you know, uh, put you out of your uh, perch, right? Because it is very difficult to be put out of that perch when you're generating 50, 60, 80 billion dollars uh, every <laughs> year, right. right? I mean, so so tell me to some of those big tech companies. So your your bread and butter tends to be smaller, younger, faster growing businesses. If I think about an Apple or a, a micro, a, a Alphabet or a Google or something, or a Microsoft or an Apple or whatever, Amazon. 
Um, Amazon's probably a different example actually because it's not quite as as stable as the other three. How do you do? You use cash flow as a valuation tool, like a, an Apple hasn't got the blue sky of a Tesla, for example, necessarily. Or maybe it does. I don't know. You can disagree with me. But for a business, or maybe, let's use Microsoft, maybe a less uh, a little less uh, emotive one. Do, do you use the free cash flow to kind of assess whether it's worth buying or a price that's worth paying for? Do you use that as a as a as some sort of estimate of value or as part of your value kind of? Again, you're not a value guy. But how much is too much to pay for Microsoft? Do you use free cash flow in that in that analysis? Yeah, so like, I have a very, I have a, you know, this this comes to I guess portfolio management. I have mm. a very simple strategy, or, or or not a strategy, but you know, a hodgepodge way of managing my portfolio. So I've got mm. a bunch of these companies that are blue chips, large, high free cash flow generators. Yeah, my intention is to actually not sell them. Okay, right, I right. I have, and I look at the free cash flow largely as a way to decide if I want to buy more. Now, this might appear contradictory mm-hmm. because, you know, well, if you don't want to buy more, then why? You, well, <laughs> yeah, it's right. largely yeah, because, yeah. again, you know, uh, I think every portfolio needs to have, like, in every portfolio benefits mm-hmm. from owning something like a Microsoft or an Apple or a it just gives your portfolio stability. It's yeah. the stuff that's not going to sink. It's the stuff that's going to generate, you know, gazillion dollars of cash. Yeah. It's, it's going to beat the market yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. going to thrash the market, like you know, by you know, is it going to ten bag? No, <laughs> but uh, it's that right. So it's it does it. It's it's it's. I look at the cash flow really as you know. There are points mm. in time when mm. Apple has appeared to me, for example, to be dirt cheap. Uh, I've told many people um, to buy at those points. And dirt cheap in again in in a, in a free cash flow in a free cash flow sense, like, right? You know, like yep. in the normalized free cash flow and what I think this business can grow. I mean, and again, I'm saying this business can continue to grow, yeah. right? And it seems like well, it generates so many billions of dollars. Can it grow? It can absolutely generate more because you know the rich gets richer over time. Uh, yep. uh, the best gets better over time sounds odd but the best because you know they just yeah. just it's the you know they have to make mistakes of their own to fall from where they are um it's to put it yeah yeah and and then they, everyone else to beat them unless they beat themselves yeah they have yeah. to beat themselves yeah and and then that for the likes of tesla and, mm-hmm. and amazon i think free mm-hmm. cash flow is interesting is interesting it's not doesn't tell a whole story you can't really use it as valuation but it's interesting because when you have a disruptive company with huge market opportunity mm-hmm. the moment you have tipped into that territory where you're generating a couple of billion dollars to few billion dollars of cash yeah. you no longer depend on the whims of the market yeah, right. you control your destiny you set the agenda mm-hmm. and the others follow you yeah, right. right that is a beautiful place to be so mm-hmm. the moment you know a tesla gets there well it basically says well you know what this is how electric vehicles yeah. are going to look yeah. this yeah. is how autonomy is going to look yeah. i'm going to tell the world how it is going to be and guess what? You have no choice, but you're going to follow me. Right? <laughs> right exactly. And that's how it, it plays out. Yeah, that's yeah, what Amazon yeah, has done. Yeah. It doesn't mean that one of those companies <laughs> is going to own 100% of the market, but right, they are right. the trailblazers and they're going to lead the way and they're going to be a bunch of followers trying to follow. Some of them are going to, you know, some of those followers are going to stumble and die, mm-hmm. right? That's what happens, yeah. right? So I look for those transition points. To me, those are tipping points. Like the moment that tipping point happens, it's like, okay, you have now graduated from being risky being yeah. not that risky. Yeah, right. Then you get to the tens of billions at a point at which you become, oh, you mm-hmm. are definitely mm-hmm. not that mm-hmm. risky anymore. Mm-hmm. You're okay to hold and you now move on to that bucket of, okay, you're the blue chip that's going to give my portfolio. It's going to guide my portfolio from volatility, right? So I own some of those. I don't own Microsoft. I own Tesla and Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I own a bit of uh, 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 um, MasterCard. Do I think MasterCard is going to 10x? 
No, right. right? Um, you know, if I had to buy a payments company, I'd buy another payments company that's going to t- 10x, but I wouldn't buy Microsoft. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, sorry, MasterCard. But would I sell it? No, because again, mm-hmm. the amount of cash it generates is just, um, you know, th- there are some businesses I think that people think, uh, there are just some businesses which I think mm-hmm. are great to have in a portfolio. And it, it's it's that, right? It's, it's, You're just reluctant to sell them. It's not just reluctant. It's like it's those. The, these are companies which generate between, say, you know, twelve to fifteen percent compounded returns for me. I mean, what's wrong with that? I want to get more, um, you know. But I mean, I've owned Apple for what eight or nine years, and you know, it's like a six or seven bagger or something like that. Yeah, Nothing yeah. wrong with that, yeah. right? It, could I get more? It's not a Netflix, yes, but nothing wrong with you know, 15% compounded returns yes. from a stable company <laughs> exactly. that you don't have to worry too much about, right? right? Sometimes it's about, you know, I don't want to worry too much, just there. And then I, I really don't like to pay taxes on stuff I sell, so I just, yeah. I just own it. Let the compounding do its thing. Very nice. There you go. Hopefully, Hoppy, that uh, makes up for my uh, inability to remember to ask you a question. All right, next one from Jim. This kind of talks a little bit about our Friday conversation. We talked about Twiggy and his renewables push stock. Jim says, hi, Scott. Should investors be all in renewables before the rest of the investment community realizes this may be the next tech boom? And then he says, uh, thanks in advance if you can include this question and maybe some info on how you can access this sector. Now, I did talk about on Friday about the, and you, you, you brought it up, but the difference between how you wish the world would be and what you should invest in. So there are plenty of people out there who want to invest in renewables because they care about the environment. That's different, particularly if you're buying on the secondary market. The company may not get any, if you buy shares in the ASX in renewables companies, the company doesn't get any more money at all from that. You just, you're paying the person who currently owns the shares. So be very careful, Jim and others, with, uh, with investing because you want it to be true. That being said, Jim's question, I'm going to assume, and I think it might be, just simply a straight out investing question, as you say, a, a mercenary question, to use your word, of is there money to be made in renewables? And if there is, is now the time? And if now is the time, what should they buy? Yeah, like this is hard because again, if you're talking about um, buying utilities, right? Mm. You know, it, it's just hard because it's not a sector that I look at like the utilities. Um, I would echo what you exactly said, right? You know, just because we think ultimately, exactly as you said, ultimately mm. it's what guides evolution of these things mm. is basically economics, right? I mean somebody has to work to bring the economics to the scale where it is better to actually, it makes economic sense to own this and that thing wins, right? right, right, right. To make that happen, you have to do a lot of R&D and that is moat, yeah, right? Yeah. And that moat allows you to win over the long term, right? Now, how many capitalists are doing that? Yeah, you have to find that. But utilities, it's harder mm-hmm. because, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if if I have one utility is running a wind farm, another utility is running the wind yeah. farm, well, they're going to be all marginally on the same price point, right? And even then, those utilities who are doing it are largely also in other businesses. So an AGL that has one of the biggest solar, you know, facilities in New South Wales, also there's a truckload of coal and other stuff that it's also still doing. So it's hard to find a yeah. unique, you know, kind of pure play renewable utility and as you say even if it does it's a commodity product it's providing yeah so like I mean maybe you know you want to keep an eye on what uh, Andrew Forrest is doing and maybe you know does he have a spin-off spin-off mm-hmm. or some company that's going to do um, you know create value creation so you have to think about a value creation that's going to be possible mm-hmm. um, so you know and then the same thing I wouldn't put money into some sustainable something just because I think this trend is good I need to know what the underlyings are mm-hmm. to uh, invest um, in that. So it's yeah, 
Trend, yes, but you have to find individual companies that you know have the opportunity to create value. So that you know, I'd say you know, I mean, if you want to if you want to invest in a whole bunch of things, I would say invest in Tesla. But mm-hmm. you know, that's that's one example. I can't give multiple mm-hmm. examples. It's hard, Jim. I can't I can't beat Doc's answer. I think the only thing I would say is just a. I, I know I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but if we if you'd known the growth in air travel or the growth in oil consumption over the last 50 and 100 years respectively and you'd chosen to get in there before everybody else you had made probably nothing in oil and probably lost money almost certainly lost money in airlines and so you need to be a little bit careful that even if the trend is real there may not be an investable opportunity i, I happen to have that view of lithium for example i think we'll have a truckload more batteries but miners are pretty good at adding the supply when needed to keep the cost down and i think that all the prices down and that that tends to be i think that the likely reality even if the trend is real, you've got to look at someone who's actually capitalizing, making money in that sector. And that's incredibly hard when your renewable energy is, a, it, it will be a commodity. It just will be over time, right? It'll become the, the new the new coal, the new gas, the new oil. It, it's not, you know, n- none of those things are worth investing in long-term for their for their, <laughs> for their value creation. You might, I mean, people trade oil and God knows what and good luck to them. Um, but yeah, it's very, very hard. So I... I would speculate if you're looking for a so Doc mentioned Tesla. I don't own Tesla. I don't have a positive recommendation on it. Nor do I, nor do I have a, nor am I shorted or hate it. Um, the but as with every business that we always talk about, you want to look for something that has some sort of sustainable competitive advantage in some sense that gives it some sort of pricing power that lets it make money um, and more money than than just you know scraping in. So it may be the Tesla brand. It may be another battery technology. It ends up with some sort of brand benefit. It may be that. Um, there's something else but uh, you know I'm not going to pay for you know Doc's wind farm or Scott's wind farm and, and pay more because it happens to be one or the other I'm going to say great there's two wind farms out there they're going to compete for energy um, d- distribution whoever gives me the lowest price is going to win that's a terrible thing you don't want to you don't want to be buying shares in something that, that makes money or, or makes revenue by being the lowest price lowest cost is great lowest price really is alright Doc question from Dom hey Scott question for the podcast I like this one. What does a negative interest rate from the RBA actually mean? I've heard yours and Doc's views on the recent drop. We've been a little bit forthright on that. But don't quite understand what a negative rate would mean for the average punter. Love your work. Thank you. Well, I'll take first go at this, Doc, and then you can throw your thoughts in. <coughs> Excuse me. In the short term, for the average punter, the, the average punter is an important one, right? So negative rates effectively will mean that a bank has to pay to leave its money with the RBA. So the, the this is a really quick, super quick version of it. Um, the RBA's official cash rate is the amount the bank will pay the, the reserve bank will pay the big banks for leaving money with the RBA overnight. So what happens, the, the RBA says, give me your money at the end of the day, I'll pay you a tiny fraction, one 365th of the official cash rate every night to leave your money with me. And the lower that is, the less attractive it is for the banks to do it. So if they're gonna get 0.1% leaving money with the RBA, in theory, they're incentivized to lend it to you and me instead. That's that's kind of the idea of lowering the cash rate. It's kind of what it's about. If it's negative, the banks will have to pay <laughs> to leave money with the RBA. So they, they put their million dollars in and they take out their $999,998 and next day they kind of have even less, next day they have even less. And as you might expect, that incentivizes them to leave even less money with the RBA. In other words, lending even more of it out to businesses or, or homeowners or something else. So that's what it's for. That's how it works. The average punter, well, almost certainly we'll never pay a negative mortgage rate. I mean, if we get to that point, we're in all sorts of trouble because the banks have to make their margin. Now, if the banks are going to make two percentage point margin, by the time we pay negative rates, the official cash rate would have to be minus 2%. So we're not talking about minus half a percent or minus one. It'd have to be super, super negative. And that's, that is, 
years or some dramatic, you know, horrible, horrible, you know, dislocating event away. Um, war, famine, God knows what. Let's not even try and imagine what that would be. So negative rates will have no, no impact on you and me. It will reduce our loan rates further. It may be a case that if banks are going to make, say, a 2% margin, that, you know, the official cash rate goes to minus 05 and we pay 1.5 on our mortgages, for example. That that's the sort of way it might work. Um, so it just it just means lower mortgage rates. Almost certainly, I can't imagine a scenario where we pay negative rates on our mortgages. If it gets to that point, I think I think we might as well give up and re- restart the economy from scratch in some other in some other fashion because it will have been fundamentally probably irreparably broken. Don't you have any more thoughts on negative rates? Um, no, I think I think I agree with everything you said. Um, yeah, I think there's a floor. Or to, to how low? I, I think zero is the floor. If we get below mm. zero, I think it signals bigger problems. Again, I'm not a proponent yeah. of lower rates. And the RBA so. is being desperate to avoid zero. They've said they don't want to do it. They've gone to point one rather than zero to try and have some positive number there. Yeah. Doc, question from Sports Girl, or maybe a comment but question, and I think this is interesting in the context of DOMS. Hello, Scott. The RBA rate cut didn't get passed on for my variable loan, and that's why I wanted to talk about this one. Look at maybe refinancing to Pacific Mortgage Group for a cheap variable loan with a one in front of it. Do you know much about them? I see they're owned by CBA. I see uh, your thoughts. Thank you. Now, Sports Girl, I don't know anything about Pacific Mortgage, and I have no view on that. The only reason I wanted to highlight this other than to answer your question, I did respond to you directly on Twitter. So uh, I'm not giving you a short shrift for anyone who's worried I'm not doing the right thing by, by Sports Girl on her question, um, was I want to remind everybody that the headlines, the bait and switch headlines of, hey, we've all lowered our rates. And then you look at the fine print, oh, we've lowered our fixed rates, but our variable rates are still higher. So bad luck. Um, don't buy the hype. Don't buy the headlines. If you're on a variable rate, either consider sw- fixing is one option or at the very least, Make sure you shop around because some have actually dropped their variable rates, but very, very few. And the ones that have have been largely non-bank lenders, Doc. Athena Home Loans is a business I don't know from Adam, uh, but I see they have passed it on. You know what I like about Athena too? They they give their current customers the same rate they give for their new customers, which is pretty cool. So that's part of their marketing and part of their, their brand promise. Uh, so please, Sports Girl and others, please shop around because your bank almost certainly hasn't passed on the RBA's reduction, but others have. And as I always say, don't pay too much. Any more on that, mate, or you let me leave that rant there? Um, I'll, I'll have let you have it. <laughs> mate, one from Samantha. I like this question because it's a question that others might have. It also touches on our ethical investing point, though. It's not the point of the, the question. Samantha says, Hi, Scott. I've been a long-time follower of the podcast. I'm a big fan. Thanks, Samantha. My partner and I have started dabbling, and in an attempt to contribute ethically, we may have made a capital letters huge mistake we invested into infogen energy and looking at it today it looks like there has been an acquisition and it has been delisted we didn't quite realize what this meant and never accepted or saw any offers can we do anything now to get our investments back she says i'm worried we might have missed the boat in registering or accepting but it's already been delisted but we will keep our fingers crossed so rather talk about infogen energy specifically doc because a it's delisted and b i don't know anything about it uh, let's talk about compulsory acquisitions. So Samantha's company has been acquired by somebody else and she's worried she's not going to get her money back. What happens in a compulsory acquisition? Well, if it's a compulsory acquisition, I think, you know, of a certain percentage, I think, what, 90% of, of the shareholders vote um, for the acquisition, then, the, you know, it doesn't matter what the remaining 10% yeah, say. Um, that's right. Well, that's pretty, it's a democracy, but only to a point. Well, it's more than democracy, right? In democracy, 51% vote for something. That's true, sorry, you're right. Yes, uh, right? Yeah. So, and then you get that. <laughs> yep. So, it's, it's, you know, the share market is at least being more very, very fair. Um, in this case, so I would think that you would, you know, if suppose it, the company has been acquired by another company and 
and either you get that company share if it was a share related you know mm-hmm. you got x shares for whatever shares you own there uh, or and or if it's a cash you should just cash should show up in your brokerage account um well, you so may get a check depending on how your brokerage account is set up Oh, you missed a check. Yeah, yeah, I've never got a check, but okay, we'll take a check. Come on, once I hadn't, I hadn't set up my account at that point. This must be two years ago. I got a check for a dividend or something. I can't remember what it was now. Also, oh, your brokerage didn't have the details. Yeah, depending on the brokerage, you had to tell them specifically to, to okay. apply your bank settings to all the holdings. And this is back when it was voluntary. You had your company by company. Okay, and I'd forgotten one. I think it might have been. I can't remember what it was now. But yeah, got got a check. So yeah, yeah, you should get the money. And and if, and if it was like a, at a zero dollar value, then you get nothing. But I don't yeah. know anything about Infigen. So so it was ninety two cents a share, Samantha. Um, yeah, you will. So look, here's the thing. Make sure you keep an eye out. If you haven't looked at or seen the paperwork, either you're not paying much attention to your, to your personal personal administration. That's up to you. That's not my not my place to comment on. Um, so but so make sure you do because if they do send you a check and you miss it, that could be expensive. More to the point, though, Samantha. Just to, and for everybody listening, the reason this question is worthwhile is as Doc says. First point: if there is a if a buyer buys ninety percent of the company shares, it's allowed to automatically buy the rest. And you'll get cash or shares depending on the, the condition, as you say, Doc. So that's the first thing. Second thing is if you didn't see the offer documents, I said either you're not paying attention, so please do that, or it's actually possible your um, details are wrong with your broker um, or your your share register. So I would actually take some action, Samantha. Just make sure if you haven't got any, if you if you're sure you haven't got any paperwork, there's a decent chance it's going to a different address or to some for some reason your details aren't correct with your broker. So waiting for something that may not come, uh, you need to probably be a little bit proactive. So make sure, as I said, you always make sure you are opening your mail uh, from your from your investments. You do need to think, supply things like tax file numbers and stuff. So please do that. Um, but also, as I said, if, it's, if it hasn't come, if you haven't got the offer documents, very possible your details aren't correct in your broker's system. And so if you're waiting for a check to arrive that won't arrive because you haven't got the assistant, the details right, um, you want to go and jump on that. So do be do be proactive, but but thank you very much. Doc, I let's go back to macro for a second because uh, a couple of macro questions this week. I, I put a call out yesterday for some questions for the podcast and got some really good, really good questions. This one's really macro. Harold asks, in quotation marks, I think he wants his question asked <laughs> word for word, which is fine. He also finishes with a wink. So I think, I, I'm not sure if he's uh, pulling our chain a little bit. Harold says, why hasn't quantitative easing achieved an inflationary breakout anywhere in the world? And I like this question because it's supposed to. If you listen to every economist for the last 70 years, they will explain to you the story of the German Republic between the wars when massive amounts of money printing sent inflation through the roof, the proverbial wheelbarrows full of cash being wheeled down the road to buy stuff. Um, we know elsewhere around the world, money printing, creating more cash, you know, injecting money into the system is supposed to create inflation. why they do it. And so there's, you know, back as far as the GFC, there was this thing about, you know, QE will create hyperinflation. People were buying gold and Bitcoin and shotguns and baked beans and it was going to destroy the economy and it didn't. And now we are post-COVID, QE is well and truly back, Australia doing it for effectively the first time and still no bloody inflation. And as I said, it's supposed to happen. The textbooks are really clear. You add money to the system, you push prices up, you create inflation, job done. Harold wants to know why the textbooks are wrong. Well, why hasn't it created the very simple yeah. answer? The, the textbooks, you've already given the answer. Textbooks are wrong and economists are wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> why are they wrong? Or, uh, or you just know they're wrong because it hasn't happened? Oh, they're wrong because, I mean, if, it's not like, 
economics is not like physics, right? So it's, there's like no, it's not like the apple is going to drop from the tree. <laughs> there's a physical law, uh, and uh, it's going to work out. So I think that's part of the problem is that you know we try to. Uh, so I don't think I, I'll say the economists and the highly paid people who shouldn't be highly paid. And as you I said, you mentioned Governor Lowe again, aren't you? Well, I could, as I said, <laughs> I could do that job for a quarter of the pay. I'll do it for a quarter, and you know, taxpayers would save a lot. Treasurer Morrison, Treasurer Farmer, there's your offer. Yeah, it's it's in a quarter of the pay. It's very easy. Cut the <laughs> rates, and then expect something to happen because some book fifty years ago said so. Um, yes, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm taking a, a, a wide, broad shot here. A little, a little. Yeah, but it's okay. That's what I do here. Um, I think nobody's going to give me that job. So that's the tangent. Well, I don't know. Like a couple of things um well you create more money you with more money you're supposed to buy things apparently those is supposed to cause competition but what mm. if you know um we have all that we need mm. and all the new beautiful things we want to buy basically are becoming cheaper mm. by mm. you know like tv is now cheaper than it used to be uh music consumption is more cheaper than it used to be uh we have you know so you you create more money mm. um and those things just go to your savings account. You just keep it under the mattress. <laughs> <laughs> you don't spend it because you don't need it. Or mm. so I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, I think technology um, and innovation and and internet and things like that have mm. basically made you know things smaller, faster, cheaper. So yes, we can. There's only so much people can consume. Mm. I think maybe there is there is that right. How much more coffee can I have? Is as I like to say, you know, you can give me more money to have more coffee, but I'm not going to have more coffee because I can only have two or three coffees a day. I'm already <laughs> I'm already up to the brim. How much more can I have, right? So mm. it. I think what it's doing is asset price inflation. So it's, yeah. and and it's pushing the price of certain assets up, yeah. whether it's the stock market or the housing bubble, as I like to say, because well, you've got money, so you're going to mm. put it somewhere, mm. right? So it's not doing anything productive in that yeah. sense because. The theory doesn't work. I think that's true. I think I think I would largely agree with that. I'm not as sure about some of it, but I think the concept is roughly right. Um, and I think it's wrong either, by the way. I just don't know. I would say for what is worth, Harold, I think part of it is that the money hasn't got to the hands of people who would otherwise create the inflation. It hasn't caused enough additional spending per se. Um, to Doc's point, most of the money has gone to asset prices, which is a different form of inflation, by the way. If we, if we actually included asset prices in the CPI numbers, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing for different reasons, but I think you'll find that the... Because of the economic settings, because of the way this money printing has been done, the money's ended up in asset prices, not in consumer prices. Uh, but that's that's my take. I, I don't claim to be a, a particularly high-profile economist, but that's my that's my view. Next one from uh, yeah we. So, yeah. so that's that's your benefit, right? I mean, you're not so, a high-profile uh, economist, which means you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not sure so you're call, starting... Just direct st- cause and effect to your point. So, the so, link there so already, you're but. starting on a good wicket. <laughs> it's a good batting wicket. You can make some runs there. <laughs> there right? we go, I mean, there we go. Clearly, you know, all the other stuff is not really working. <laughs> so remember, it reminds me of the old joke of the uh, two economists walking down the road. They see a $20 note. Yeah, and they don't pick it up. Why do they pick it up? Well, because, you know, it can't be a $20 note because somebody else would have picked it up. That's so. right. If the Michael's fish that someone already picked it up, so I can't possibly... <laughs> Be there. I love that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. One of the cool things about Twitter, mate, I was about to say, is, that, is um, 
Oh, you get to interact with some really cool people. Stephen Kakoulis is a very well-known economist. Speaking of economists, sorry, Steve, we've just given, given your profession a, a, whack, a massive great whack. That was Doc mostly rather than me. Um, but it's, pretty much, yeah, it's kind of nice to be able to interact with, with people on, on Twitter and just, you know, hear different opinions and, and share stuff backwards and forwards. And Stephen saw my call out for a question for the podcast. And he asked a really cool macro but, but investing-related question with an interesting kind of concept. And I think... There's, there's two ways we can answer this. We can either address the hypothetical and, and dispel or, or disagree with it, or we can actually follow it through just for the fun of it. Maybe we should do both. Stephen says, as a rhetorical, what if, just pretend, in 12 months the economy has fully recovered, growth unexpectedly booming, COVID sorted, rate hikes being priced in, where to for the ASX? And this is kind of an interesting kind of hypothetical, right? Because those set of circumstances may or may not happen. So that's, that's the first question is, you know, is, is it a reasonable assumption? But on that hypothetical, in terms of the range of potential outcomes for our market and for us as investors, it's one of the things we at least should be considering and be thoughtful about because if it does come to pass, there may well be some opportunities and frankly some risks in that sort of scenario. So Doc, firstly, do you, do you think Stephen's proposal is possible? And secondly, if it does come to pass, even if, even if you think it's completely irresponsible and I haven't asked you about this in advance, so I don't know what your answer is going to be, what would happen if these set of circumstances came to pass? Well, I'm not an economist, right? And as I, as I like to say, the economy is not the market. <laughs> and I really, you know, like, I mean, sure. I mean, you know, everything goes back to, you know. So we will get, here's the thing. If all of those things come to pass, yep. I'm betting that the ASX in the next 10 years is going to do 7% like it has done in the previous 10 years. <laughs> and that's really the only thing I'm willing to bet, right? Because, well, that's what the ASX does. Because the ASX is full of, you know, when, when we say the ASX, right, what yep. we mean is, you know, I should clarify this. What we mean is we're talking about the banks who are not going to grow. We're talking about the miners who are price takers. We're talking about a bunch of other big telcos mm, who are, mm, again, mm. not going to grow because, mm. well, that's what happens. You can't increase, jack up the price of mobile telephony by 50% because that's just not going to happen. Yep. Uh, and if it does, there's going to be competition. So, <laughs> so everything in that ASX 100, mm. you know, bar a few, right? Mm. So we're not talking mm. about the zeros here or the afterpays, which are, you know, cha- trying to change the world and mm. which are actually growing elsewhere mm. as well. Most of the other stuff is mm. going to do exactly what it has done in the past. Mm. So there's no reason for me to believe that it's going to deliver more than what it has delivered in the last decade, which was a pretty good decade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I'll take 7%, and that's what I think it'll do, 6 to 7%. Let me give us advocate, though, mate. Like, like the averages, the market almost never does the average. It all does more or less in a given year. Over time, the average is the average, but I, I, I'd be interested to have a look, actually. I, I know Morgan Housel, our, Eric's colleague in the US, did some work. The market is almost. I think. I think. I think. I'm right in saying the U.S. market has never delivered the average in any in any year in the data. So I said ten years. No, sorry, but, that, so, but I'm talking about next year, right? So that, that's I don't point know what is. it's going to do in the next year. Right. But I'm going to say that whatever it doesn't matter. It's going to do that six seven percent. You want to take that six seven percent? Uh, but if you knew there was twenty percent on the table, you buy it, wouldn't you? If you could make twenty percent between now and December thirty. No, but next I'm not going to. I am not ever going to take that risk of putting my money on stuff like that, right? Because. To me, that is just b- bizarre. Like even super funds, they mm-hmm. should, you know, they should all hire me for advice here. Yeah? <laughs> You'd be a busy man, mate. You uh, work for the RBA. You be no, but here I'm funds. solving everybody's problem, right? <laughs> all of those people who are trying to time to get the twenty percent because they think that the banks are worth twenty percent less. I mean, why take the trouble? Just invest in Amazon. <laughs> be done with it. Like I mean, it is, you know, like you don't want to. This is a very hard game to play, right? Exactly. And, and your uh, Westfield one is a fantastic example. Right, 
everybody thinks it's cheap, so it went up 40%. This is from Friday, yeah. This is right. from Friday, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. so like, <laughs> well, I don't want to play that game. I'm happy for others, and I'm happy that the super funds and everybody else is playing that game mm -hmm. because that means that I have a chance. If everybody started doing what I was doing, then I would not make any money. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm happy for them to not make that much money, right? <laughs> so, well, you know, and this is for listeners, right? I mean, you, you can't just, you know, this... What it is going to do next year? I don't know. It's, maybe it's going to be up. I actually don't care. <laughs> Honestly, I don't care. I'm in fact I'm happy if it is down because you know most of the recommendations, like you know, like everybody's happy when the market is up. I'm actually very depressed when the market is up. I'm really depressed when the market. Now, is up. are throwing things at you right now, virtually, if not, if not. Well, but I'm telling you what. Like no, but the listeners too. Our listeners should also not care. That's my point. Yeah. Because. If you are, say, you know, subscribing to say something like Extreme Opportunity, even Share Advisor, yeah. we are not recommending to you the market, right? Yeah. In fact, the market is up. Our comparison, you know, which is what we are benchmarked against, is yeah. up. I don't like that. Who likes their benchmark to go up? <laughs> I want my benchmark to go down, and I want my stocks to go up, right? And that's what it is. So I really, I, I, I really hate those days. I, I feel depressed. The market is up um, because I really don't care about the market is my take, you know? So you just look at, if you look at the, the, the fantastic companies, the companies that are changing yep. stuff, they're going to just be fine. Invest in those, ignore the rest, move on. That's now, my um, answer. Long winded answer, no, which so, is not an answer. So what I like about this is this is important because even our, our sister company in the US has done has done. I'll say Twitter polls. I'm not suggesting this is this is qualitative double blind research, but Twitter polls, asking people whether they would rather beat the market or make money, and the vast bulk of respondents, even people who follow the Motley Fool in theory are foolish investors, would much rather actually, as their primary goal, make money, as opposed to beating the market. And I think there's a really important point that Doc's making here, which is exactly that. Right? I think we all. Look at the market, and Doc's. Well, you know, I'm happy because the market's down, or, or, or you know, I'm happy because the market's up. Sorry, because I want to beat the market. Um, I think that's a really important point. I think if you're going to be an investor, well, for, firstly, look, I don't think anyone should do everything just because we do it. But it's worth it's worth just separating those two things out for a second. If you're someone who just wants to make money, just wants to make investing life easy, there's a, there's a very different way to invest. Buying an ETF probably a fantastic way to do it. Probably some diversified ETF ETF to try and you know, not. Put too many eggs in a single basket, but a couple of ETFs, two or three ETFs, makes a whole lot of sense. If that's your your thing, if you just want to make some money, compound your wealth nicely for many years, buying the market's a great way to go. And we will get back to Cook's question in a sec. But to Doc's point, you know, following the market because it's the market is of some sort of intellectual interest. It certainly is the benchmark you should use to make sure your returns are good enough. Otherwise, you shouldn't be investing. You should be either letting someone else do it with you or buying an ETF if you can't beat the market. Join it, as they say. Um, so that's. Me, that's an important part of, of investing and understanding your own abilities to do well enough. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, that, that is exactly the point. Right? Worry, worry about what the banks are doing makes no sense unless you're investing in the banks. And so taking a different perspective is is really important. Many people don't or can't don't want to or can't do that, and that's okay too. But knowing who you are as an investor is super, super important. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on Q's question, mate, just to, for, to play the hypothetical. I'm happy to play the hypothetical game with him. Um, it's a Look, I actually think 2021 will be okay. I think it might even be good is my is my speculation. I'm probably not far off from Cook's point. Maybe he's making it uh, entirely ironically, in which case I've fallen into his trap. I'm not sure. Um, but I think, you know, the 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 one of the – and we've talked about this before. You know, when, when you come out of a recession, you grow, and somehow we say that's great. You know, an economy that fell 20% and grew 3% is not exactly in, fully, in full health. But year on year, if you're looking at just those numbers – I think it's very possible that in 12 months' time, we actually are in that situation. Short of another shock, second wave, third wave stuff, 
I think it's probable the economy does almost fully recover. Probably still some unemployment lags, but but reasonably fully recover. Growth comes back almost because we've come back from a depressed position we are in this year. COVID, again, we hope that the the, um, the vaccine works, right? And uh, the combination of that and lockdowns and border controls will probably help that to improve, hopefully 100%, but we don't know. Rate hikes being priced, I think that's the long shot. The RBA has pretty much said three years. So unless unless they get a really, really, really meaningful shock, I'd be really surprised whether they would do that, whether the market would price that in. I do think, though, mate, it's fair to say that if you are looking at the ASX and, and maybe the bad news for us to your, to your very point about, you know, what's the what's the bogey look like? What does the market look like? I wouldn't be at all surprised if 2021 is a, a decent year for the ASX. I could see house prices going up in a, in a, in a surging economy, even if unre- unreasonably. That's good for bank profits. I can see, you know, the recovery to of energy prices. We saw only this week, oil prices up, you know, six or seven percent a day. The oil sector was up eight percent a day. I could absolutely see a range of scenarios where those large parts of our economy, as you say, as unappealing as they are for us as individual investments, it may be a tougher year for us to beat the market next year than than maybe you know we might we might hope. And and again, if you're invested in those companies, you're in a different boat than what Doc and I are. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see 2021 actually be a really good year for the ASX. Now, of course, the next six weeks could take that away, and we're looking at individual arbitrary Jan 1 to Deck 31 numbers. The market could surge between now and December and then be flat for the next 12 months, and it'll still be a great 13 and a half months. So, you know, doing doing individual single years is always tough. I wouldn't be at all surprised, mate. Am I, am I, am I way off beam? Um, no. Like, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, the market might be up. I, I really, like... I don't think about it that much, um, so I don't have a really informed yeah. view. Um, I, 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 I'm not. I'm not predicting. You know, I don't do predictions, but I can actually. I don't know. I have half a view that we might actually have a, a decent year for the ASX this year or next year, 2021. Yeah, like I mean, you know, yeah, potentially. I mean, hmm. again. Uh, I'd be depressed. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope so, well. Uh, so this one, now I'm now I'm sure not sure whether I want you to be depressed all next year or whether the market to do well and make money. I'm, it's one of those. I don't know. It, it is funny. It's well, like I, a, I'm happy. Go. I'm happy for the market to make like five percent, six percent every year. I, I, I mean, Mo- I'll, moderate I'll, but easy to beat. Yeah, like what? <laughs> I really like that because here's here's the thing with five percent, right? The market yeah. makes five percent. Yeah. Well, in a zero rate environment, well, in a percent interest rate environment, well. Five percent right. is, uh, is pretty good right right so it's better than nothing yeah um yeah like uh, you know but uh, that's what i wish for i don't really know what's going I was, to do i, I have make no exactly idea. that point right it's, a, it's an important one because in, it's all I, I make this point about inflation and wage growth i am absolutely sure even if even if people listening to this are clever enough to realize what i'm doing and and say no, no that wouldn't be me i'm pretty sure australians would rather a three percent pay rise in a four percent inflation environment than no pay rise and no inflation and if you think about that no pay rise sucks, but no inflation means prices are the same as they were last year. So your purchasing power is the same. If you get a 3% wage rise, but prices go up 4%, you actually go backwards. Your standard of living actually gets worse. And yet I'm absolutely sure that people say, I haven't had a pay rise since X. I'm not, I'm defending that by the way, but you know, they hadn't had a pay rise since X conversations are real. And I know they have a psychological impact, but you know we've got no inflation right now. And, and we've, we've lived through as, as adults and investors and other things, we've lived through higher inflation times where wage growth was there but still didn't keep up with that inflation. And so you kind of got to be careful what you wish for a little bit. And I think the true is also true of the market. Mate, some question from Anders. And this is a question without notice. And if we haven't 
if you don't have an answer, we'll hold it over till next week. But Anders wants to know about the latest push pay earnings result. Have you had a chance to have a look at that yet or have I, have I got you on a hop? Yeah, like I've just had a very high level look at it. So on okay. a high level, it looked like, you know, uh, good uh, growth, uh, margin expansion. Mm. Um, yeah, it looks like they have up guidance. So like, I mean, you know, it looked looked good, but I haven't look, had a deep look yet myself. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we might, we might hold that over. Uh, thanks for the question, Anders. We'll, we'll have, a, have a squeeze. I was... I was a little bit mindful of their lack of growth in the small medium church segment, Doc. So I'll be I'll be asking about that next week. There's a, there's a heads up. I don't we don't have that much we don't have much planning that I give you much of a heads up. But there you go. There's a there's a week's head up. Uh, response from Bearman. Not so much a question, but just some feedback. Uh, Bearman says, Scott and Doc, you've had questions around investing for kids. I suggest having a look at investment bonds. Specifically, check out Generation Life. Uh, as, an, uh, as an individual stock to look at, we'll talk about that separately. Strong sales growth from a low base, competi- uh, competitors have their issues, etc. Um, and I said, great, thanks, how are the fees? The price is what you pay, value is what you get. He says, okay, it's not that cheap, but you can access the likes of Vanguard, Magellan, etc. and you have the tax benefits that investment bonds deliver after 10 years. Long-term tax-effective investment for uh, for all, but particularly for kids. So there you go. If investment bonds are on your agenda, if you're looking for something for kids, I have no strong view on investment bonds. We're probably overdue to get to talk to us talk about that stuff so I might we might have last next couple of weeks try and find someone to give us a quick feature episode on investing for kids um, we don't tend to have a lot of expertise on investment structures per se so we'll give some feedback but there you go there's Bear Man's thoughts for anyone who wants to include them clearly not advice from him or from us uh, question from Rocky Cricket a regular correspondent I haven't heard from Rocky for a while so thanks Rocky Doc <laughs> I'm going to ask this question the way it's asked I assume I know the answer but I'm going to Give Rocky the respect of asking the question. Doc, are gold mining stocks worth investing in at the moment? Um, well, for me, no. <laughs> I don't know. What about for, what about for Rocky? Well, but I mean, well, like me, you know, gold miners are basically, again, price takers, right? <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, I really don't know. Like, I mean, it depends on which miner, what the costs mm-hmm. are, what the price is, what, you know, the historical price curve looks like, what the cycle looks like. Mm. So, too many difficult questions for me to answer. I really don't know. I'm sorry, <laughs> Rocky. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I would speculate no. Um, so look uh, to Doc's point. I don't. I wouldn't. I don't own any gold mining stocks. I've never owned any gold mining stocks. We've never recommended any gold mining stocks. We're a long way from that category now. That also, by the way, means we're not experts in the area. So take everything I say about gold with a with a grain of salt. Um, we don't do it, by the way, not because we're um, not because we're pedantic or, or, or philosophically opposed as a matter of faith. It just so happens that the economics aren't very good. It's very tough to make money gold mining. As an investor, it's very tough to find the right gold miners to invest in. Uh, that doubles up the, the risk and, and, the, and the challenge. So we don't do that. That being said, the time to buy gold miners is when the gold price is low and heading higher. Now, we can't know where it's heading, so just hold that in brackets for a second. Um, the, the problem, unfortunately, is we've gone through so much uncertainty recently the gold price has gone through the roof because everyone's gone to gold as the air quotes safe haven asset now kind of is ironically because it is because it is it's self-filling prophecy everyone buys it so the price goes up and says see i told you what safe haven asset the price has gone up uh and you've got a bit of a you know um it's a bit of a self-filling prophecy because you know everyone buys it that's what happens that being said it's also true generally speaking that when better times recover people go oh thank goodness i can sell my gold and buy stocks again if you're buying gold right now i think it's a i think it's a it's a, it's a an aggressive, um, optimistic view um, of gold. It's depends on the rest of the economy, by the way, and, and the and the society we're in. Because if gold stays high, it'll almost certainly be because there's more outbreaks of COVID or more uncertainty or more concern. If you are someone who, I guess, if you, 
if you don't like volatility and you want to buy gold because you want to feel good about it, I guess I can't disagree with on a personal level doing what you feel good about. Um, I think owning gold is generally going to cost you over the long run relative to stocks. Um, now, it might save you, save you some volatility. You might go up when others go down and you feel like you've done well. But unless you can buy and sell at exactly the right times, chances are like the last six months when the market's up, what, 35 40% doc? Um, if you have missed that because <laughs> you were worried about the market not coming back, um, that's a tough thing to do. So if you're going to buy gold, I would suggest you only should do it if you believe things get worse rather than better. I think that's a hard thing to believe at this point, certainly in any long-term perspective. Any more on that, mate? Oh, I have nothing to say about cool. gold. Speaking of, speaking of great correspondence on Twitter, Pat Garrett, who's the CEO of Six Park, uh, they're a robo-advisor, threw us a question. I like that as well. Uh, Pat, thank you for the, for the question. He says, it seems that US election and success in COVID management here in Australia has perhaps distracted us from the prospective impact of COVID problems in the US and Europe. In terms of the toll of those important on those important regions and globally, do you think there's an underappreciated downside scenario? So I like this one as well. I'm an optimist, as, as Pat likely knows, certainly as our listeners know. Pat's question, I think, is fair. I think I, I've been guilty of not so much not so much extrapolating Australia's experience to the rest of the world, but certainly allowing myself to think locally, maybe rather than globally, and not necessarily um, factor in or, or, or remember that the case counts in the US are still going up, that much of Europe is back in the second lockdown. I think France, Germany, and the UK to different degrees are back in some sort of lockdown. We're kind of, you know, I, I'm, I've seen and spoke a lot about the recovery here that I, that I think I see, but the rest of the world isn't going quite so well, Doc. Is there, is there, a, is there a, a downside here where Australia does well, but, but only so well given the limitations of, of being a globalised world and, and a part of that globalised world, meaning that we kind of import the bad news uh, because we can't get enough growth outside Australia to really help us continue to recover. So I'll repeat the answer. So what I've said before, I think I hold that view. Like, I think the problem with thinking about... So we think about case counts, we think about lockdowns, mm. right? And then we we think about what it does. Yep. But does that stop... Um, the wheels from spinning, right? It does mm. not really stop the wheels from spinning. And we can talk about recovery or no recovery, but I mean, you know, Apple is selling more iPhones and widgets and, uh, you know, right. these software companies are selling more software and, um, you know, new stuff is being invented, you know. So does it, I mean, mm. in some mm. sense, the, the challenge of COVID is is an opportunity, right? It's an mm -hmm. opportunity because it changes many things uh, for the long term. Mm. It also propels many things to the forefront that would otherwise have taken time. Mm. Um, and so that there are those all those. So I think I think we can't compare. Mm. In my mind, it's hard. It, so it's one thing to say stuff is back to normal because people are going back to shopping, mm, but how mm. does that help you to invest, mm. right? I don't invest in shopping malls, so I really mm, don't care mm, mm. in that sense. Like, you know, yeah. it, it sounds odd, but you know, okay, well, people are back to shopping and people are spending more in Bunnings, but they're spending more this year. They will not spend more next year at the right, same time. Right. So does it really matter, right? right? I mean, it does not, in that sense, it does not matter. Mm -hmm. I think what matters is, is there going to be a COVID vaccine? Mm. When is it going to come, right? What form that's going to take? Mm. And once that is there, mm. 
we start off right you have to remember the best of the best businesses have not stopped functioning they mm. have actually been mm. innovating continuously mm. and this continues right so in fact in my mind it's a question of well you know there's immense transformation that's happening and it's not about these retail numbers and things like that mm. those those mm. are i think those are not investment worthy mm. or or not they're not investment impacting in that yeah, right. sense so so I don't I don't know like I mean I'm pretty optimistic that there'll be a, there'll be a vaccine uh, we've already seen some positive results and you know maybe by next you know this around summertime or summer northern hemisphere or our winter next mm. next year mm. covid is mostly under control but life is back to normal for most parts but from an investment point of view nothing really fundamentally changed mm. right um and that's how like you know is uh, that's how i think about it like i'm not sure how else how what else can i think i mean mm. so i'm trying to separate out the individual yeah. aspects are there companies you own or invest in or are keen in that do get impacted by the economic cycle i mean to some degree as you throw the, there's, there's there's businesses that in different universes didn't go broke because the GSC didn't happen and are now world beating companies that you know they, they needed funds at exactly the wrong time when VC funds had their you know the, the cash flow was going out they couldn't raise money I mean we we thought you know nine ten months ago there'd be a whole lot more bankruptcies on the ASX than there were it turned out that the shareholders came to the rescue were just capital raising after capital raising after capital raising in a different universe and again we can only live in one but you know in in some in some version of of the current you know, circumstance, there were, you know, 20, 30, 40 ASX companies of decent size that went broke because they couldn't raise that capital. Are there businesses you invest in, you kind of think, well, a prolonged downturn actually could, you know, see them literally run out of cash with no hope and they get sold for a song to somebody else or that can't sign up new customers because, you know, their customers aren't buying right now because of COVID, no one wants to buy. Is there any, any economic impact on those businesses at all? Do you think about that? Yeah, so so, so, so certain businesses are, ch- are in the in the most challenging um, you know, so the travel travel companies, for mm-hmm. example, are in the most challenge. You know, so they have got some runway, and you know, and they would probably be the ones that are desperately looking for. You know, let's open up the internal borders. Let's open up the external borders. Let's get tourists in. You know, let's get you know, like nine to ten million people visit Australia every year. Right, right. right. You add nine million people to a population of twenty-two million. Mm-hmm. That's a humongous input right, yeah. right the input of tourism is is understated in this country right mm. in that sense then if we think about uh migration right that's another huge you know you add 200,000 people totally. coming to this country they bring their money they you know buy more inflated assets that helps other people right so we we, we, we there's a lot of f- things that happen but i think yes so there's some consideration for that mm. um if you assume that there's no va- there's no vaccine uh, that's going to be there, then it's going to be. I, I really believe that there's going to be a vaccine, and right, you know we've yeah. already seen proof that there's there's vaccine. In fact, we'll see step change in vaccine technology, which I think is going to be mind bending, mind blowing in many different ways. Right? It's going to make certain things obsolete, right, right, right. and then it's going to introduce new uh, new ideas. So I think there's mm-hmm. that, but. but if you take the view that we're going to address COVID, whether in six months mm-hmm. or in a year. I think worrying about that's a policy question, that's a political question, that's a you know uh, health management question, mm, right? Mm. There are you know you could say that you need to do this, that, X, Y, Z. I think it you know most of the businesses that are addressing 
um, innovative tech or that are producing innovative technical solutions I think are going to continue to do fine mm. right um, you know so if people are gonna, people are using and and then the other I think the other other backstop you realize is that if this continues longer it continues I mean you know there's f- free flow of uh, stimulus money that's coming it's not just here it's everywhere right the longer this continues there's more stimulus right I mean so in many many ways, mm. I, I think the only thing to consider is for individual business as as investors and in individual businesses is the what is your bankruptcy risk, yeah. right? Uh, that's in my mind, that's the most important question to consider. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's right. Uh, yeah, I, my my version of that is, is different because I invest in different companies to you, and the economic circumstances are more important to me than they are to you, just by virtue of our our different investment portfolios. But the the ironically, or maybe not ironically, maybe maybe, maybe this is the key point. It still remains the story that you're looking at the long-term earnings power of the business you're investing in, and as long as you can avoid that bankruptcy risk and get through, you know the the, the earnings power in 2022, 23, 24, as far as you want to think, is really the key number here, rather than what happens in the next 12 months. So if you can get through that, your question is now: I'm being offered price X. If I had to buy the business, if I, if I was going to buy a news agent or a cafe or a something, and own it for the next 10 years, that's the way to think about buying shares. And so if you're looking at a business saying, you know what, I can see in Doc's case. This new little cool tech startup I just bought the entire business for is going to be much bigger in 10 years because it's going to do X, Y, and Z. Or if I'm going to buy a, again, using my cafe example, I'm a cafe, whether whether there's council doing roadworks on the street for the next six months or not, is kind of irrelevant. As long as I've got cash flow to get me through the tougher time in this case, but I know or expect that in you know, a year's time, the cafe is full and I can reasonably estimate the earnings power of that business, I know what the right price is to pay. And I think looking at this year's profits or next year's profits aren't very useful in any of those cases, including, by the way, in some of Doc's you know, high-growth companies where there are no profits issue. You are literally looking at 10 years and saying, this business could earn a lot at that point. Um, the, the earnings power of the business, the, the ability to generate profits at some future point and over the future, far, far more important than what happens in the next 12 months. Is that yeah, fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And the survivability is right. Is yes, the other the thing. Yeah, risk, yeah. so we, we really, I mean, that's that. those are the two things really yeah. to think about. Mate, um, do you follow Alibaba and the Ant Group IPO? You know, there's a lot going on there. And there is. I, there's, <laughs> like, apparently, I have not followed it very okay. closely. There's only so many things one can follow. That's true. It's... Uh, but it looks like a fascinating story of there was a big IPO, supposed to be the biggest IPO yep. that didn't happen. And then apparently there is some investigation going on now against both Alibaba and mm. some other mm. companies mm. about um, price fixing, I think, or something mm. like that mm. in the online market. So I'm not really sure. It, it looks very convoluted. Nice. And I have just, you know, sometimes I just tune things out yep. because I, you know, I'm not invested in it and I don't need to understand it. So... I, I agree. Sorry, Sam. We don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Um, Chris and Miguel also gave us some questions. I think we've pretty much covered it. We covered the uh, Miguel asked if there's a market overreaction to the tech sell-off. We've covered that. Uh, Chris asked about the whether we see the ASX going forward. I think we've done that in pretty good depth of detail in response to a couple of questions. Um, I thought I'd finish with the last one from Patrick. Uh, in the in the in uh, well, last game of the state of origin came up in a few days' time. And I like this question from Patrick. You, you can guess which state he might be from. He says, "If state of origin was a business." And you had to choose either side to invest in. Why would it be Queensland? <laughs> and he finishes with Queenslander and some exclamation marks. So Patrick, I, I love that. I love that hypothetical question slash sledge uh, slash uh, slash statement, mate. Thank you. Uh, of course, 
the, the reason you would invest in Queensland is because after Wednesday, they'll be the losing side and they'll be cheap. So if you're a value investor, buy Queensland after they lose the state of origin. Okay, that's probably the way I'd do it. All right, that's well and truly more than enough time we've spent on this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've enjoyed your Sunday. We, as always, enjoy bringing it to you. Speaking of which, though, if you do want to join one of our Motley Fool services, I can highly recommend Docs. It's Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities and these guys talk about the companies, recommend the companies. Doc has been talking about for the last couple of podcasts. He's given us a really, really good summary of the way he invests, what he invests in and why he invests in those businesses. And probably as importantly, if you want to be able to kind of put the market noise and chatter aside and just buy those businesses that have really long potential runways, a bit more risk as we've said. So you kind of swap market watching risk for volatility risk and to some degree, the risk that some of them don't turn out, but overall the performance has been very, very good. So if you like the way he talks, you like the way he invests, you can invest effectively alongside him by following his recommendations at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. To do that, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. EO for Extreme Opportunities podcast because it makes us feel better if you use that link and then we can prove to the boss that this podcast really is generating business for the company. So fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Join Doc and Kevin in their search for the big winners, the big ASX winners of tomorrow and more importantly, the next five and ten years. And of course, please do subscribe to the Motley Fool Triple M Money. Start again. Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. It's been a long podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app, or of course, Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating, a review, some stars, some nice words would be lovely. And do, as Hoppy did, tell your friends. I will try desperately, if you do tell your friends, to have your question answered sooner rather than later. My apologies, Hoppy. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox with some marketing. Some op- I want to say marketing. Offers to join our services for cheap prices, by the way. So I reckon that's a, that's a pretty good trade-off. All you need to do is go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money special mailbag. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.